Let's return to the book of Daniel tonight. Daniel chapter 1. So last week I attempted to introduce this study through the book of Daniel. I highlighted some of the events which have led up to this book because verse 1 opens with the beginning of Judah going into captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. Without trying to recap all of that, the bottom line is they had no one to blame but themselves. They had rebelled against God. They had rejected His statutes. They lived in disobedience to His commandments. And as a result of Judah's rebellion, God brought Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, against them. And we talked about how God is the governor among the nations. Amen. Uh, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan is cited as saying, Persistent government of God in the government of the world is the theme of Daniel. We see God's hand at work at every turn among these nations that are involved in this book. God is in complete control tonight. Amen? He always has been. He always will be. God removes kings and He sets them up as He sees fit according to His will. Our God reigns supreme. In fact, He is called the King of kings. There is none higher. It is God who rules the nation, and this truth is clearly seen throughout the book of Daniel. In fact, we see it right away here in verse 2. The opening statement says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was the Lord's doing. It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was some kind of great and powerful man, although God had elevated him. To that, it was because God orchestrated the events in both kingdoms. God was taking care of everything and rearranging things from His throne in heaven. And that's as much of a recap as you're going to get tonight. If you missed last week, I would invite you to listen because a lot of details went in to the events leading up to the book of Daniel. Let's begin tonight. Let's read verses 1 through 7. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And we might as well stop there. That's as far as I got. I was planning to get much further. But as is typical, that didn't happen. I, I mentioned last week the, the Babylonians did not destroy Jerusalem and take everyone captive when they first besieged it in the days of Jehoiakim. But this was a very lengthy process that took place in Judah's captivity. The, the Babylonians first besieged Jerusalem during the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, but they would Jerusalem would not be totally destroyed and led away captive until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And all told, if you do the math, it took roughly 18 and a half years from the first time that Nebuchadnezzar showed up and began to lay tribute upon them until they were carried away captive and Jerusalem was destroyed. And just think about that for a minute. 18 and a half years. That's long enough to take a child from birth and see him through graduation. This is a long period of time is what I'm saying. 
uh, that's almost an entire military career. And, and let's face it, if you're in the military, it is, because the last year you're probably doing nothing anyway. God was being merciful to them by not destroying them right away. And yet they still did not repent. God gave them time, and they still didn't do business with God. They did not humble themselves before God. And this is a picture to me of how complacent people can become in their backslidden condition. You just kind of grow used to it. How easily people can grow accustomed to the enemy controlling them at least being at their doorstep and at least having an influence in their life. People can just grow used to it. And, and honestly, people can just give up thinking, this is it. I'll never, I'll never have victory. This is now my life. And, and they'll never go on to greater depths with God as a result. And I mentioned the length of time that it took for Nebuchadnezzar to possess um, Jerusalem, or I should actually say destroy, the amount of time it took for him to destroy Jerusalem because it appears that Nebuchadnezzar's original intent was not to destroy them, but rather to keep them under tribute and keep gaining the money off of being in control of them. That seems to be what his intent would have been originally. And we get this sense from verse 2 when Nebuchadnezzar, he only took part of the vessels of the house of God. He didn't take it all. Evidently, he had no plans to destroy their religious way of life, to allow them to continue to have the temple and to serve their God. And in fact, it doesn't appear that he was going to change their way of civil government. He kept King Jehoiakim in power. He didn't overthrow that. And so while Babylon was in control there for a while, they still had, Judah still had their identity they still were able to serve God if they wanted. They were still able to keep their political powers in place. And they were just under tribute to them. And when Jesus was born into this world, we find that Jerusalem is back in the same position. The Romans are now in control. And they allowed them to keep their religious identity. They allowed them to keep some of their political identity, but not all of it. They had removed the right of capital punishment from them, and that's why Jesus had to be taken before Pilate, a Roman governor. But they still had their religious identity, and they still had some civil power because the council is in power in religious affairs. And so just an interesting parallel there that I'm sure will come up more when we get into the later chapters of Daniel, and you will have forgotten all of this that I said in three years from now. Now, we see that Nebuchadnezzar took vessels which belonged at God's house. He carried them to the house of his God in the land of Shinar. And why would God allow this? These are vessels that belong in the temple to the service of God. And yet God allowed them to be taken by Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldeans, and led into the house of his own false God. God allowed this because Judah was guilty of bringing the world's gods into the house of God. You reap what you sow. They had, I remember, remember uh, King Ahaz? Was it Ahaz, I think? He brought, he went up to Damascus in Assyria to meet with their king. He saw an altar to a false god, liked it so much, he had a priest make one just like it. And then he brought that false altar into the house of God. And there was, there's plenty of examples of how Judah was guilty of doing this. And so God now is allowing items of the temple to be taken away to a place of idolatry. And 
The fact is, this is often how God works. If it wasn't so serious, it would be humorous. Because God lets you reap what you sow. And, and when that happens, it's, it's like we, we were talking the other day about a situation that I won't mention. But God has a way of taking an individual who says, I won't, I'll never, or whatever the case, I, I hate this, I don't like that. And God has a way of turning that against you. And the next thing you know, you're right in the middle of the thing you never wanted to be a part of. My wife had the bright idea some 20-something years ago, 25 years ago, to say, uh, I don't want to go to Korea. <laughs> God said, guess where you're going? Korea. And so, listen, you just be careful. You're going <laughs> to... Anyway, I'm getting off track. And, and so, God works this way. And, 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 and don't worry, I'm not going to get on a soapbox here. But by way of a quick application, what we see in verse 2 with Nebuchadnezzar taking these vessels that belong to the house of God, taking them to the house of his false God is that this is why the church needs to be kept holy. Remember, they had taken things of the world, brought them into the temple, and now God is letting the temple things be taken into the world. And so we have to take uh, this idea of church seriously. We we have to keep our, our holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And we've got to make sure we're not trying to mirror the world not mirror that image and bring it in as as I mentioned earlier. I've said it before, but I'm fine with whosoever will come in here and listen to the gospel. Amen? Amen. I mean that. I'm fine with that. I don't care their persuasion in life, what they're thinking, as long as they're not sowing discord among the brethren or they're not trying to propagate false doctrine. People are welcome to come in here. However, they are not welcome to yoke up with us. Why? This is a church of the living God. You have to be saved. You have to be in Christ. You have to know Him as your Savior. And so we've got to keep this thing pure. We're not to yoke up with those that do not agree with God's Word. Now, listen, that's not me being ugly. That's the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, Listen, we're not to baptize the lost. (laughs) Duh, right? We're not to allow them to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. That's what Jesus taught. We're not knowingly to allow the lost to serve in the house of God. It happens because people can give you a testimony and they're not saved, right? But we're not to knowingly allow these things to happen. And we are to be a holy assembly. And we have to guard the sanctity of this body of believers. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. And sure enough, what did the Babylonians do with the vessels from the house of God? They weren't sanctifying them. They weren't using them in any service to God. Uh, They were not keeping that holy, but they were making it profane. And it's not only clear from verse 2 that this is taking place by taking them to the house of of his God, but we'll eventually see in the beginning of chapter 5 that Belshazzar, he took the vessels which Nebuchadnezzar had took from the temple and he used them for one of his celebrations. Daniel 5, verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, and his wives, and his concubines might drink in them. 
Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. Listen to this. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. They were flippant with it. It was not something precious to the lost. This idea of church, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the lost. Amen. They don't process it. They don't understand it. And if we start to get flippant ourselves about this matter of church sanctity, then we're on the path of offering up strange fire before God. And that didn't work out too well for Nadab and Abihu. God killed him. Right? It didn't work out good for King Uzziah. He thought he could take the place of the priest and go in and offer uh, burnt incense. And when he tried that, the Lord gave him leprosy till the day he died. He had to live as an outcast for the rest of his life. It didn't work out well for Uzzah when he touched the ark in an effort to keep it from falling off the cart. And God struck him dead for his error. This is serious business is what I'm saying. Amen? Uh, this idea of church. It's more than us just coming in here trying to stay awake during a sermon. <laughs> There's a lot more to it. We can't just do whatever we feel like doing, but we have to maintain God's standard of holiness. We cannot allow, listen now, listen, we cannot allow ourselves to simply become a cleaner version of the world. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? We're not to be just cleaner. We're not just to have, oh, their words don't have cuss words in their songs. You know, you understand what I'm trying to say? That's not what we're about. We're to come out from the world and be separate. And so that's going to be part of my main focus here in just a minute as we settle in here to verse 2. But we see in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar, he carries a part of the vessels of the house of God into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. Before I get into my main thought, the land of Shinar, it may sound familiar to some of you. And for those who may not be aware, the first kingdom ever mentioned in the Bible is in the land of Shinar. It was ruled by Nimrod. It was in the land of Shinar where the Tower of Babel was being built before God confounded their languages and caused them to be scattered throughout the earth. The land of Shinar is where Babylon first originated after God's great flood. And the kingdom of Babylon is representative of the kingdoms of this world. Those who will stand in opposition to God and His kingdom. We see this throughout the Bible. And in the Bible, you'll read of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. You'll see those two terms quite a bit. And there may be a difference ethnically, technically speaking, between the two, but they both represent the same Babylonian system. In many aspects, Babylonians and Chaldeans are synonymous in the Bible. The grand object of our Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Within that, one of the major themes of the Bible is how He calls us to come out of the world of Babylonia and into a life with Christ, right? That's one of the major themes that we get as we read through the Bible. And I could really drag us deep into the weeds here, and I'm going to try my best not to. We'll get deep later in this series, and you'll fall asleep, and I won't even wake you up. In Genesis 12, 1, God told Abram, Get thee out of thy country. 
Remember that? Get away from your kindred, from your father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And in Genesis 15, 7, God told Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the Ur of the Chaldees. Abram, in, in Genesis 14, 13, is then called the Hebrew. Why was he called a Hebrew? It's because Abram had been called out by God and he obeyed. He called him out, he obeyed. Hebrew, the, the word Hebrew, it signifies to cross over. There is a turning point in your life. There is a transition. There is something that has taken place. Abram was called out from the world's idolatry. His father was an idolater. He was called out from that, and, and he was called away from that way of life to cross into a life hid with God in Christ. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then later on in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, it says, These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they, say, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and if truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might, have have op- they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. And so Abram was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. We put it this way. Abram was called out of Babylon. He entered into a life with Christ. You say, he knew Christ? Yes. The Bible says in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He knew Christ. Abraham had faith in Christ. Abraham was no longer Abram the Chaldean, but he was Abram the Hebrew. Amen. Now, what is the command in Revelation 18, 4? When you get over to the end of Revelation, it talks about mystery Babylon. And, and it says this in Revelation, Revelation 18.4, Come out of her. It's a coming out. Mystery Babylon, my people, it says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Therefore, we can really say from Genesis to Revelation, we find this idea of coming out of the world and entering into a relationship with God through Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you knew I'd get here eventually, verses 14 through 18. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of, of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them 
And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So that call, it's been ringing out forever. God is always calling people to Himself. Hallelujah. He is trying to draw people out of the world and turn to Christ. I'd ask you tonight, have you answered that call? Have, have you come out? Have you entered into a relationship with Christ? You say, come on, preacher, it's the Wednesday night crowd. There's people here lost. That's a fact, without divulging any information. Have you entered into that relationship? Have you crossed over? Have you left your old life in exchange for a new life in Christ? And what's great about Abram is we don't find where he had to tell anybody, well, now you need to call me Abram the Hebrew. No, listen, this was what the world called him. They went to him. They went to Abraham the Hebrew, or Abram the Hebrew at the time. They went to him. That's how he was identified by the world. Listen, get this now. The way he lived demonstrated how the world thought of him, right? The way he lived is what people saw in his life, and they could tell this man has come out and he's crossed over. Something is different in this man's life. His old life is dead. He's now living a new life. And, and so to you who are in Christ, and I know that's got to be the majority of you probably tonight, those of you that are in Christ, has your name been changed? Has your name been changed? You might be a believer, but you may not be a Christian. Right? Everybody tracking there? Christian means Christ-like. You might be a believer in Christ, but you may not live like Him. And, and so I'd ask you those questions too. Uh, have, have you crossed over? Abram, with nobody telling him what, you know, Abram not telling him what to call him, none of the early followers of Christ in the book of Acts said, let's identify ourselves as Christians. But it was the world who called them Christians. Why? They saw in them Christ. People who lived like Christ. They, what happened? They, they came out. They crossed over. They were a Hebrew, if you will. They became a Christian. And so the world can see who we are by how we live. What a humbling thought. Can people identify by your life that you've crossed over? Can they see you have turned your back on the world to follow Christ? It's, it's one of the themes throughout the Bible. God wants to give you a new life. Hallelujah. God wants to give you a changed life. The Bible makes it clear God has made a way for both to come to pass through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we become separated by obeying God's Word. Remember, Abram was called out and he obeyed. God wanted the children of Israel. I want these children to show the nations around them that there is a difference that there is a God in heaven, and He said, I want you to put a difference between clean and unclean, between holy and unholy, and He gave them laws to do that. And He wanted them to follow those laws so that everybody could see, this is a people that I've called out. They have crossed over into a new life. And I want everyone to see that there is something different. And God still wants the same for us today. Because we're called out. We're called out of the world's kingdom into Christ's kingdom. We've been called out from darkness into light. 
Colossians 1.13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. 1 Peter 2.9 But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen, we're a called out people tonight. In fact, the Greek word for church is a called out people. We're a called out assembly. We're a calling out from the world. That's what we've been called out from. We've been called out from Babylon and that world system of idolatry and darkness and sin. And we have been called to Christ and into His kingdom of light. You might be thinking, wow, this is all great, but what does this have to do with Daniel? (laughs) You thought I lost track, maybe. I gave you this long opening and some of this background to tell you that what we see in verse 2 is the opposite of how God intended their life to be. He had called them out of Babylon. And what do we see taking place? They are going right back into Babylon. This is the opposite of what God wanted for them. Instead of coming out of Babylon and being identified as Hebrews, they're sliding right back into Babylon and into the hands of the Chaldeans. And as we saw in our series through Esther, the majority of them are just going to grow content to dwell in Babylon or what will become Persia. They'll just stay there. They won't return to Jerusalem once they are released. And the application I want you to get from this goes back to what I was trying to say earlier about how their destruction, their captivity, it took years to come to pass. It was a process of years to go into captivity. When Nebuchadnezzar first besieges Jerusalem, he only takes part of the vessels of the house of God. And I thought tonight, I thought before tonight, but as I was studying for this, I thought, this is how the enemy works. The enemy will come in, and many times, listen, first of all, he comes in to steal, kill, and destroy, amen? And and oftentimes, he's not just going to come in and wipe everything out, but he's going to work little by little. The devil doesn't mind to work slowly if necessary. He will take his time. We've been called out of the world. The devil knows this, but he wants us to return to Babylon and live a defeated life while being held captive in the land we once came out of. That's what God wants. God, when He brought him out of Egypt, said, don't go back to Egypt. Don't trust in horses and chariots and, and don't go back there. What did they do? They went back there. They put their confidence in man instead of the Lord. They didn't want God reigning over them. And and so the the devil wants us as believers tonight, he wants to take us knowing that we've come out of Babylon, he wants to put us right back in it. And he's patient. He, He will take his time getting you to turn back. Though Jerusalem's backsliding, we we know it began decades and centuries ahead of time. It took roughly 18 and a half years for Jerusalem's destruction and captivity to come to pass after Nebuchadnezzar first showed up. It's a slow process. Most often, it's a slow process. It happens slowly in our children. Amen. I'm just trying to give some examples. I feel like I'm losing some of you already. We raise our children, and they're cute as can be at this little age, you know. They start getting a little bit sassier when they get older. But this slow process takes place. And sometimes they go out there and they have to live in the world before they realize, I'm in the hog pen, I better turn back. You understand what I'm trying to say? But it was a slow process. It took those 18 and a half years of raising them. It took that time to raise them, then you shoot them out in the world. 
And, and so it, it's slow, and the devil doesn't mind taking his time in your life. Nebuchadnezzar only took part of the vessels. Listen to this now. He kept enough in Jerusalem for them to go about their business. He kept enough there for them to continue their quote-unquote worship of God. The devil will work by subtlety because otherwise it's too obvious if he doesn't. He may come in and only take part of what rightfully belongs to God. But he'll take part if he can. And he'll come in and he'll take a little bit, but he'll leave you enough to be able to come to church, keep doing what you're doing, keep going through the motions. Notice how the enemy in our text, he began at the house of God. He took part of the vessels of the house of God. Though your backsliding began some time ago in your heart, our enemy will seek to manifest that outwardly in affecting your worship at the house of God. I've said it before. I'll continue to say it as long as I'm up here. I know the moment I stop seeing you where you sit, backsliding had already started taking place in your heart, but now it's being manifested. And that's why I started to get concerned. Why? Because the devil's starting to take part of your vessels away. And he's starting to lead you away captive little by little. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes. He goes to the house of God. He takes away part of the vessels. And that's how the devil wants to mess with you. He wants to get your church life negatively impacted. There are a bunch of hypocrites down there. I think I have some of that in my notes coming up. But listen, you might even be faithfully attending. But perhaps the enemy has taken part of your church life away already. Is everybody with me tonight? I hope I'm connecting the dots here okay. Maybe you know of some things the enemy has taken from you. And every time you come to church, you know it's not like it should be. Not like it could be. But still, nothing ever really changes. I mean, you're still here. Nebuchadnezzar showed up, took part of the vessels. Nothing really changed for Jerusalem. They still went through the motions. Maybe you're here week after week. You might even be serving in this church. But the enemy has taken part of your church life away from you. At first, the devil will leave you enough to function in the church because the devil doesn't care if you attend church so long as you're not really in church. You with me there? Uh, he, he doesn't care if you attend so long as you're not in the right frame of mind. You know, your mind's off drifting somewhere. You're thinking things you shouldn't or whatever the case. You're mad at somebody. I don't know. He doesn't mind because if he can rob you of something essential from the house of God, then he's already on the path to victory. The devil knows he can't take away your salvation. It would be good if some believers believed that. The devil knows it. But if he can get you to come in here without peace, joy, and love that we have within the Holy Ghost, then it's only a matter of time until you'll drop out. Because he's already succeeded in beginning the process of taking you into captivity. Maybe it'll take 18 and a half years. Maybe it'll take longer. But he's already started. And you're already allowing that foothold. He's on his way of taking you back into Babylon. And of course, he'll destroy you when he can, however long the process takes. Is there anybody here, you, you know, the devil's just been working on you and 
and you've actually grown convinced that it's not worth it to be as faithful as you used to be. Maybe he's convinced you not to give through your local church. Maybe he's telling you Wednesday night prayer really isn't that valuable. Maybe he's convinced you to step away from serving. Maybe he convinced you you're too smart for what's being preached. Maybe he's convinced you that somehow you can serve God apart from what God requires. I had that conversation Sunday with somebody visiting here. Well, I've always felt I could serve God and not have to be in church. And I politely said, not according to the Bible. Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Jesus wasn't on the earth. What was he talking about? You're persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. So what you do to the church is how you treat the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is logical sense to me. Maybe he's even taken your song out of your heart. Maybe he's convinced you that they don't like me over there. I'm not being rude, but man, I grow tired of hearing that. I don't know about everybody else, but I labor for you guys. People say, wow, they just don't like me over there. They must be talking about me. This is how Satan works. You with me? Maybe he's convinced you that it's someone else's fault when really it's your own sinfulness. That's your fault. Proverbs 14, 14 says, the backslider in, in heart shall be filled with his own ways. So don't try to blame others for what you've done in your life. And, and listen to me, it could be any number of things. I'm just trying to give you some things to get your mind thinking. But I trust tonight that if there's something between you and your God, that the Holy Spirit is bringing it to your mind and into your heart so that you can deal with it. Amen. Nothing between me and the Savior. And if the Lord has laid something upon your heart, you need to deal with it because whether you realize it, to not, whether you realize it or not, you're on the path to captivity. Satan wants believers to live a life in Babylon. He wants to bring you back into captivity. And he'll begin with only a part of what belongs to God. Amen. I know this from my own personal testimony. This is why we have to be told in the Scriptures, stand fast. Why are we told that? Listen, the Bible says in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast. Don't go back. We're, we're told to stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in the Lord. Stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught. Our theme verse for the year tells us, Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another and provoke... Uh, Consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves or ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. So much the more as you see the day approaching. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we're told, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, these are obvious things. Why are we told this? Do we really have to be told to stand fast? Well, apparently we do. Even though they're obvious. Even though we know it in our heart. 
Why? Because the enemy is walking about seeking whom he may devour. And the natural tendency of our flesh is to return back to Babylon. From where God called us out and died to take us out from, our, in our flesh, in our carnal mind, we have a tendency to go back. And listen to me now. It becomes easy for the enemy to capture us when we decide we're going to straddle the fence and keep one hand in the church and one hand in Babylon. And the devil comes along and he's, man, it's easy then. It's easy just to go ahead and get you to cross on over. Why? Because you grew, you grew complacent with it. You grew content. And, and so be careful with that. You can't have one foot in the world and, and one foot in the church. God was merciful to Judah here. He gave them 18 and a half, 18, 19 years, depending on, on how you look at some of this. But he, but he gave them like 19 years to repent, but they chose not to. And then they were destroyed and taken captive, which he had foretold of, but they could have still repented and got right with them. But they chose not to. And so how long are you going to take to get right with God? How long do you think you're going to be given? Only God knows, I I suppose. Maybe it's only a part of something the enemy has taken from you. It's just a little bit, but it's enough. And you know it's not right. You know something's off. I want you to understand, even if Satan gets a little bit apart, be careful, you're on your path to captivity. And so are you on the path to captivity tonight? If you are, why not just get right with Him? John 10.10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But what did Jesus go on to say? I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's why He died for you. Don't go back into captivity. Are you living the abundant life? Let's pray.